Welcome to Project Chatter, the podcast where PPM experts from various sectors talk about the latest trends. Listen to Val and Dale as they talk about tried and tested best practices and share their unfiltered thoughts about the industry. Whether you're here to learn how to progress your career, improve your project control skills, or just want to hear an Aussie and South African rant about projects, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Project Chatter podcast with your hosts, Dale Fung and Val Matthews. This podcast is brought to you by Innate. We hear it from our podcast guests frequently. Today's capital projects require the highest degree of visibility. That's why we at the Project Chatter podcast want to tell you about construction project management software from Innate. It's software that integrates every aspect of your project and puts you in control. Innate's cloud-based solutions provide a connected data flow that improves efficiency and guides better outcomes across the entire project lifecycle. See what Innate software can do for your next construction project. Learn more at innate.com. That's I-N-E-I-G-H-T dot com. This podcast is brought to you by Plan Academy. Plan Academy is the world's leading learning site for anyone working in construction, project management, or project controls. At Plan Academy, you learn construction, planning, and scheduling theory, how to master scheduling software like Primavera P6, and even advanced construction scheduling techniques. Plan Academy's courses are 100% online and at your own pace. You can learn at the office, at site, from home, anywhere. Get $75 off any Plan Academy course by visiting planacademy.com forward slash chatter that's planacademy.com forward slash c-h-a-t-t-e-r hey everyone this episode is brought to you by justdo.com justdo is a great business and project management tool we've been using here at project chatter i agree val i like to keep things simple and justdo is perfect for that but i do know it's got a lot of powerful functionality as well and one of my favorites is the task specific chat Absolutely. And for all you slackers, don't wait for Monday. Check out justdo.com. Now on with the pod. Hello, project people. You're listening to the Project Chatter podcast, your trusted source of project experts. I'm your host, Val Matthews. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Dale Fung. Hello, Val. Hello, listeners. What a great place to be. Another episode, another week, another fantastic guest. I am really looking forward to this one. We're going to get all geeky and I'm going to be schooled today, I think, Val. I think I will be too, Dale. Episode 70. Can you believe it? 70 episodes and we have a special guest with us today. Um, Just a reminder to hit that subscribe button too on whichever platform you listen to your good platform or podcast, sorry, on And don't forget our YouTube channel where you can see us live if you prefer that kind of thing. And if you'd like to sponsor us, Project Chatter Podcast, get in touch.com. We would love to hear from our sponsors in this pod. Let's get to it. We are joined by Mr. John Holman to talk about infrastructure project cost overruns and how to avoid them. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing? Glad to to be on. uh... It's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. (laughs) I'm sure we're going to get all geeky today. Um, But before we do, let's let's learn a little bit about you. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Val. So usually this is the, the, the segment where I read the bio, but we thought let's switch it up a little bit today because John has an amazing history and I'd love, John, for you to tell it firsthand and just sort of your origin story, your career to date, your career path, um, perhaps some of the twists and turns and sort of how you got to where you are today, if you don't mind. 
Yeah, it is a story of twists and turns. Uh, I am a mining engineer, and I spent the first uh, 10 years of my career in the coal mines. So I was a ventilation engineer and a mine planning engineer for a couple of coal mining companies in Pennsylvania, underground mining. Uh, and then the coal business went kind of bankrupt in the 1980s when the oil price collapsed. Uh, and found myself in, uh, as a principal mining engineer in nuclear waste disposal. So I was working with uh, Battelle Institute managing the uh, development of an underground repository for salt. Uh, and then they uh, canceled that uh, on me when I was living in Amarillo, uh, Texas, where we were going to put the facility. Found myself uh, between jobs, but I had met a number of people in that nuclear project that were involved with estimating, because part of my role was to evaluate the cost of the facility. And they said, uh, John, you seem pretty smart. Why don't you come over to the project side? And I became a project controls engineer slash estimator. And just kind of woke up one morning and I was a senior project controls engineer. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, so I was kind of in a panic. I'm in my mid thirties, couple of kids and had to learn a new career. But I'm a big reader and uh, kind of autodidact and learning things on my own. So I, I read everything I could get my hands on. So I essentially read the entire AEC library and everything wow. else. Uh, and from that, I realized that it didn't make any sense to me. Uh, I got very involved in AEC then and uh, ended up leading the development of the total cost management framework, which was a 10 year effort uh, it was basically my learning exercise to make sense out of project control. And so that took a forever to do that. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. Meantime, I kept changing jobs. I worked for uh, Floor, which became Floor Daniel. Uh, then I uh, went to Kodak, uh, which uh, was really a chemical company and did a lot of process plant type work. Uh, ended up back at Floor, back to Kodak. Then I, uh, where did I go then? Then I went to independent project analysis. So I eventually ended up at IPA and I was responsible for their uh, cost engineering committee, which was a consortia of all of the managers of cost engineering for the large oil and gas and chemical companies. And we would meet and do research and so forth. And I was responsible for their cost and schedule metrics program uh, and also for project controls research. So uh, I was a little different than a normal IPA analyst in that I came out of the business. Uh, the, the consortia wanted someone like myself. Uh, I was actually at Kodak, a representative to the committee and then IPA kind of hired me into the run committee. <laughs> uh, and then I left there 15 years ago to consult on my own. And since then, I've been the owner of Validation Estimating, consulting mainly on helping companies improve their project controls practices, their cost engineering, their estimating. Uh, and more and more, though, my career and interest has shifted to the, the dark side, which is risk. Uh, you know, what I learned over the years was companies really didn't need 
much help with base estimating. That by and large, uh, that was done okay. Uh, and it's not really the problem with projects. The base estimate is usually pretty decent. But what I found was that the risk analysis was atrocious. Uh, having been at IPA, having seen you know thousands of projects and the problems people had with overrun, uh, the terrible risk analysis that were done, I started to focus on that side of the house. So in the last five, 10 years even, I've been focused more and more on the risk quantification where I think the opportunity is to improve. Uh, and also having been at IPA, which has, you know, I think now they have over 20,000 projects in their database. I was very aware of the power of data and while we weren't at the time using machine learning, we were doing regression. You know, I learned statistics. You kind of have to go back to school at IPA to learn how to use data and uh, do statistics. So uh, even at my, in my 50s, I was still learning that side of that. Uh, and I'm getting older now and I don't have many more uh, careers ahead of me, but uh, what I'd like to help do now is help bridge into the data-driven world. Uh, I am not a computer guru, I'm not an AI expert, but I think I understand real data as well as anybody. And so what I'd like to see happen in industry is bring the data-driven view to the risk equation. Uh, and I think the process plant world through IPA and others have been doing that pretty well with the regression-based approach, but uh, infrastructure is lagging by about 15, 20 years in terms of data and benchmarking. And so that's kind of the last barren territory that hasn't been uh, tackled. So infrastructure overruns is the topic today because that's where my career has taken me to bringing empirical data to what we do, focusing on the risk, uh, and infrastructure particularly tackle this overrun problem, which really has to do with crappy contingency estimates. It's, it's not lying, it's not deception by and large. I've been doing benchmarking uh, individually and with IPA for 25 years. And as Ed Merrow, the owner of IPA said, uh, you don't need Machiavellian reasons to explain overruns. It's, it's all very fundamental. And while government projects are a little more subject to the politics and you can get some deception and stuff going on there, it's still just basic practices. And uh, we can get into that as we talk, but uh, yeah, I've got about 40 years varied background, but it is kind of funneled to this risk equation. No, that is awesome. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. And what a decorated career. I love hearing people's stories um, because mm. there are, as you say, so many twists and turns. And, you know, people only hear or see a certain portion of that and perhaps a, a snapshot in time. So thank you for sharing that. As you mentioned, the topic is infrastructure cost overruns and how to avoid them. Um, and you mentioned sort of your careers led you to infrastructure today, but can what we'll get into in a second or a couple minutes um, be applied 
to non-infrastructure projects as well. Um, just to set the scene, is what you're going to be talking about generic or is this only targeted at the infrastructure folks? Well, the reason I'm focusing on infrastructure is because it's the last uh, untamed territory. <laughs> uh, the process plant world, uh, I could go into it for hours talking about the history of risk quantification. But uh, one of the founders of AEC in 1958 wrote a paper uh, article in a magazine about a parametric model for contingency estimating for process plants. And it actually became quite popular and was commonly used in the 1960s. Uh, he wrote another book, John Hackney has a very a landmark text on the control and management of capital project. And he had the model in there. And uh, so data was a thing back then. Uh, every owner company had a strong database as well as the, their contractors all collected data and we're trying to build models from that. And it, uh, it, it, it was kind of a nirvana at the time. But then the 1980s came. Uh, it's about the time I lost my mining job. Uh, but in 1985, At Risk for Excel came out, which made every estimator in the world a risk expert. And the, the entire empirical you know, 30 year history preceding that just vanished almost instantaneously. Uh, and uh, it, things kind of went downhill, but the good news is uh, independent project analysis, IPA, kept the Hackney world going. It was kind of like the Irish monasteries preserving civilization back in the dark ages. Uh, so IPA built their own contingency analysis model, updated it every year as they added more projects. Uh, and, and of course, they had their front-end loading phase gate process, and it was all tied together. And then in the 1990s, Construction Industry Institute did their project definition rating index. Uh, behind that was additional quantitative research. And uh, CII also developed models from that data. Of course, nobody paid any attention to the data. And everybody uses FEL, everybody uses PRI, but the data behind it just kind of ignored, you know. But anyway, the process plant world has got it covered for 60 plus years. IPA has been around for 30 uh, years. And these models have been used uh, daily by IPA. And it's just nobody's really aware of it. It's kind of this secret little a uh, sect in a, in a background, you know, still playing with data. Now, the most wonderful thing is AI came up, you know, last five, seven years. It's kind of resurrecting. Everybody's like, oh, data, you know, mm -hmm. lot of progression. And it's like, we're, I'm ready, guys. Uh, we, we know what we need to do. And uh, so anyway, to get back to your question, the process plant world has been benchmarking for 30 years, uh, they get together here where I live in Ashburn and all the executives and put their logos on the board on their cost effectiveness and cost accuracy. And uh, so, but transportation has nothing like that. There's no benchmarking to speak of. They have no real data. They don't have the history, history of the Hackney type model. Now there are, you know, pockets of empirical excellence like the 
the FTA in the US has some empirical based models. Uh, there's little pieces mm. and parts of it. But like I said, they're lagging the process plant world by about 15 years, both on the phase gate side. Uh, you know, the process world's had phase gates for 30 plus years, but the transport really didn't start implementing their phase gate until about 2000, uh, the last 15 years. So most countries now have phase gate. So that's the first step. Now the second step is to use that mm. to quantify mm. the risk. Yeah, no. But, uh, tr transport is, the last, like I said, <laughs> Uh, frontier that hasn't been brought up to speed. So process plants, I think, pretty much got it covered. Uh, but uh, people in infrastructure don't seem to be aware there is, a, you know, all of this has happened. You know, anyway. No, that's that's fascinating. I, I love the insight and obviously backed up by plenty of data and analysis and research that you've done. Um, I wonder then, okay, so let's get into it. Um, just one question from me before I hand to Val around infrastructure cost overruns. What is the data telling us that is a main root cause? Is it um, poor estimating? Is it the contract, nature of the contract? Is it behaviors and culture? We, we hear a lot of that. Um, is it just hiring incorrectly, the wrong staff? Is it a host of, you know, um, the, a combination of factors? What is the key driver that sees these overruns um, just from your view of what you've seen of the data? Well, the fundamentals of projects are essentially the same in the process plant world as it is in infrastructure. Uh, of course, politics is involved in government owned projects. Uh, a little bit more, so there's some bias there. But uh, fundamentally, uh, they're the, the same that way. Uh, the transportation, the big difference is, A, they have lousy contingency estimating, which, which is true everywhere, actually. <laughs> uh, but they have this nasty habit, being political, of announcing the project too soon. And I think Marion Terrell in Australia, you know, through the Groton Institute has brought this up. And it's pretty common knowledge that mm. uh, the politicians will uh, announce a project when it, the estimates class four, class five, uh, before uh, we really even know what the scope is, uh, which would not be a problem, by the way, if the contingency addressed the level of scope definition. Just remember those words. All we have to do, people, is use the contingency method that gives you enough money to cover the lousy level of scope definition. That's it. So, you know, we can probably end the interview here because it's such a simple one. <laughs> right, but, done, cut. <laughs> you know, it's, that's it. You know, so we're in the, like I said, the phase gate system solved that problem for the for-profit world. We have had phase gate and a fairly disciplined development of the scope along with the estimate now for 30 years. Uh, just about every process company has phase gate since the mid 1990s. Uh, so there's a lot of discipline there. So nobody approves any money, announces money until it gets through the phase, the gate. And the, the risks are better understood, but in the, government world because they did not have phase gates until about the year 2000. 
they were just announcing willy-nilly, you know, as soon as it, you know, they wanted to get some political points, they would say, we're going to build this bridge or this highway, and, uh, and we weren't ready uh, as a profession. The cost engineers and rescue analysts, we, uh, it just wasn't ready. So unfortunately, about 2000, when the phase gate was kicking in, uh, that's when Dr. Flidberg published his first paper on lying uh, misrepresentation in the transport world. Uh, really got it wrong. <laughs> uh, it's simply a case of they weren't uh, estimating the contingency realistically and they were announcing it class four uh, or even class five. Now, in the, in the transportation world, they wouldn't know what a class five was from Adam back then, but uh, that's the problem really, is the timing of the, uh, the, the studies that started coming of the behavioral scientists uh, was just as the transport world was starting to introduce phase gate and just trying to get some discipline into their process. So uh, all of that's happened in the last 15, since about the year 2000, uh, quite dynamic situation. And now we have this tug of war where we have the behavioral scientists on one hand have created this false message that it's all bias and, and deception. Uh, and we have the practical side like myself and others who recognize that no, it's very fundamental practices that are just really lagging badly in, in the infrastructure world. Yeah, that's great. Uh, John, I, I hear all your points there and, and they're still pointing to the fact that, that we don't have um, you know, those maturity steps in infrastructure. And I agree with you. It's the last frontier uh, and how exciting for the rest of us uh, that are in the infrastructure business um, to bring those uh, I call best practice or recommended practices forward. And there is this kind of shock and awe when they say, Oh, when you do bring some of these things forward, John, and they, they, they perceive them as new. And when you surprise them even more by saying these have been around for a while, um, they're like, oh, okay. Uh, but I want to get into this with you. I, I mean, we did have someone, uh, episode 52, we had Dr. David Hewlett. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with each other. He's also an AAC fellow. And he talked about the six maturity levels of risk analysis, which I thought was really, really good. Um, and you're talking about classes. Maybe can you give us a bit more of a description of these classes and why they're important in terms of risk and estimating? Well, I, mean, I do know Dr. Hewlett and I, I think I, he probably would deny it, but I helped recruit him into the AEC world back in about two. <laughs> we were developing the decision and risk management certification exam, and we needed a scheduling guru or expert to help us with the recommended practices. So David kind of came out of the PMI world and got him into the AEC. Nice, good work. House, but uh, so no, we've known each other. We're both co-chairs now of the Decision and Risk Management Committee. Uh, we have different views of things, but uh, all of us uh, well-paid consultants uh, get pretty passionate about <laughs> our method. <laughs> but anyway, in terms of classification, uh, the most fundamental risk management practice is uh, stage gate or phase gate scope development. That is risk management. It is the only reason for phase gate is to manage the risk, which is basically only approve as much money 
is commensurate with your knowledge of the scope and your ability to, uh, to understand the risk. And so mm -hmm. we do that in a disciplined way. So phase gate, all the, everything we do starts right there. Uh, now, again, going back to history in the 1990s, uh, as phase gate became standard in the process industry, a number of us at AACE decided to, we needed a, a Rosetta Stone, if you will, of what do estimators need to know about phase gate in order to develop an estimate to align with the decision maker. So we started developing a series of estimate classification recommended practices. And really all that does is say that at class five, we have to have these deliverables at this level of definition, and that will support an appropriate estimate for, for the first gate. Then we go to class four, that's the second gate. So class four is when a company narrows down to one option. So class five, we have multiple live options and they have a long-term budget. Mm -hmm. That's a whole risk analysis question in its own right of how do you put a range on five yeah. uh, But class four is actually an extraordinarily important gate because they are deciding on one scope to do the basic, you know, hone in on the engineering. And so that's really the biggest decision. You're not sanctioning the money, but generally speaking, after gate class four, you rarely cancel. Uh, at IPA, we used to call it de facto sanction because you know it gets ahead of steam going. And this is also when the politicians start announcing projects. Even though they haven't got the scope nailed down, at least they have one kind of option. And then there's class three, which is the point of full funds sanction. And every industry, class three is the level of definition of prudence decision maker can approve the full funds uh, and have reasonable understanding of the risk at that point. And then there's a class two, which in the, this is, class two is very important in the infrastructure world because uh, many of the government agencies require a tender in hand before a true approval of all the funds. So class two is when you have the tender from the construction contractor in hand gives you a little more. It's not really about accuracy, it's about risk transfer. So all that happens at class two is really not more accurate, but all you're doing is transferring the risk to different parties. So the individual parties know who owns what. So from an owner, the class two looks more accurate, but really it's simply that you've transferred some of the risk to somebody else to carry. So the owner looks better. Uh, the contractor has fairly narrow uh, risk. Anyway, and then class one, really nobody does that except for change orders and things. But So we developed that in the 1990s. And since then, we've been developing different versions for different industries. So in 2018, we rolled out the classification for road and rail projects, as well as pipe and pipeline transportation and another one for uh, high voltage power, all of which are part of the infrastructure world. So we now think we have classification for 80% of the capital investment world. Still a few corners and bits and pieces here and there. Mm. Uh, like tunnels, we're working on tunnels right now and uh, a couple of others. 
Well, fantastic. Question about class. Yeah, another. I think that helps a lot of people. That um, again, you know, some of these things are, are quoted and from the AAC uh, library, but they're also uh, things that you've directly involved in, and, and it's great to hear uh, firsthand from yourself, John. I also wanted to go back and talk about contingency because you mentioned this was a big part of this avoiding cost overrun is getting contingency right. What can we do? What's the method to get contingency right out there? Well, like I said, what happened in 1985 and since then is Monte Carlo simulation became an everyday tool because it attached to a spreadsheet. And so for the longest time, what was happening is estimators simply took their estimate and applied what we call ranging. There's different versions of it, but simply taking estimate items and slapping a high and a low on it and uh, do some correlation and run Monte Carlo and call that a risk analysis. Uh, the problem is that that only works for one type of risk. And that's what we call inherent risk. It's only the risk that the estimator can see and the people on the estimating, supporting the estimate in terms of how good is my takeoff? How well did I get quotations and things like that? And do, do we understand the productivity? That's a very narrow segment of the uncertainty equation. And so, you know, I'm not putting down Monte Carlo, I'm not putting down ranging. It's only that it only works for that narrow set of risks. But what was happening is they were applying it to the entire project. And what happened in ranging is was they were sitting around a table, throwing ranges at cost number and attempting to cover all the risk in the universe, you know, all the risk events, all the inherent uncertainty, all the systemic risk, and we can get into systemic risk in a bit, and it, it just didn't work. And what it was happening is it was understating the, the P90, P95, the high end, by a factor of about two to three. We know this, we know exactly how much it's understating. Uh, mm. But we couldn't get anybody to pay attention because Monte Carlo is so cool. Man, it's, <laughs> you know, I can get that risk. I'm not going to pick a crystal ball and plug in numbers and look at this curve comes out and I can do the P10, the P90. Everybody's so impressed. But mm. ask the question, is it real? Uh, so in 2004, when I was at IPA, our cost engineering committee sponsored a study and found out, you know, and the word we used in the study was that the method was a disaster. And generally speaking, IPA doesn't use uh, hyperbole, hyperbole. It was a true disaster, meaning that it was generally a random number generator, had nothing to do with the actual cost growth on projects. It kept predicting the same 7% contingency, which was adequate to cover the inherent risk and it totally ignored all other. Uh, so we kept getting 7%, 8%, 7%, 10%, 7%, on projects. I, I can remember mining projects on the top of the Andes Mountains that you know, the con contractor was telling the owner, you know, it was 8% contingency. And it's like, you just kind of shake your head. And uh, so anyway, it's because we lost touch with data. Uh, in the 1980s also coincided with a thing called downsizing and outsourcing. You guys are fairly young, so you weren't there. It was devastating. The, the owners uh, cut their in-house staff by 50, 70%. All the people involved with historical data, building tools, data out, went out the door. 
Uh, and then they outsourced all the estimating to contractors who simply didn't pick up the ball. You know, the contractors are really good at bidding class three, but as far as class four or five, really had no clue. So uh, we were in this kind of terrible situation where there was no data. Owners really didn't know what they were getting. Uh, they weren't questioning it, except for IPA. Like I said, it was like the Irish monastery. So, you know, IPA would tell them, no guys, you know, let's get real. Here's what the data says. But as far as in-house at the owners, uh, they were they were suffering for a lack of data. It's coming back, it's coming back. But uh, anyway, uh, I'm lost track of where I was going, but did I answer the no, question? That's okay. No, that's okay. I think we're just trying to understand how, what was missing. So you mentioned inherent risk. I think just to oh, okay. drill a little bit deeper into okay. that. Um, so there's obviously other types of risks, is there, that we're not capturing and that's affecting our contingency estimating? Yeah, so the number one risk, and this is where we need to talk about terminology and some words that people aren't familiar with, but in 2008, when we started developing the AACE certification and all that, uh, the term systemic risk was brought into the lexicon that comes out of the IPA and the benchmarking world. Uh, I use the word systemic because economics has been using it forever, uh, but it, it matched a systems point of view. And at IPA, uh, we looked at project system. So IPA benchmarks, not only an individual project, but the organizations, how they do projects and their, their teams and their organization and also how they interface with the external system, which would be the politicians, the environment, the sustainability, all of that. It's a huge system. And it was pretty well understood that uncertainty, that big cloud of high and low, came not from how the estimator did their work, which was one little tiny narrow segment of the system, but in how the company executed this capital project. Uh, did they have the people to do it? Did they have the maturity like David Hewlett and his maturity maker? Uh, if you're immature, it's common sense to everybody that you're going to get a lousy outcome. You're not going to be predictable, right? Mm. So uh, systemic risks are attributes of your system. And if you have weak attributes, you're going to have more uncertainty. That's it. That's very simple. And all of the historical research going back to Hackney was quantifying systemic growth. But that kind of got lost. And one of the most important systemic risks then is the level of scope definition. The reason we call that a systemic risk because it's the, your phase gate system, again, the word system, is the process to impose discipline on the phase gate and, and your estimate, by the way. And so the level of scope definition is risk number one, big bold letters. Thou shalt measure your level of scope definition first and quantify the impact of it. And if you do that, you're about 80% there. But what you'll find on projects is they don't measure it in transportation and they don't quantify it at all. So if you look at a transportation infrastructure project at class four, there's almost no recognition that the level of scope definition matter. Now I did a, 
published a study uh, along with a consortium of US power utilities last year at AECE. And of these six major power utilities, these are big companies, guys. Uh, you know what contingency they were applying at class four was 10%. They were, we looked at the contingencies they were applying and it was 7% at class three, 10% roughly at class four and 12% at class five when they didn't even know what the scope was for heaven's sake. Mm. That's, you know, unfortunately we think of power utility be keeping up with oil and gas. But unfortunately, they're still in this inherent risk mindset uh, that's just devastating. And I think that's what the behavioral scientists didn't recognize. That, you know, they, in fact, if you look at the original Flidberg paper, he basically said technical causes can't be the explanation because we're smart people. And if it was a technical cause, we would have fixed it by now. <laughs> and I had to kind of say, Sorry, Dr. Flimberg, but no, we're a bunch of idiots. We didn't, we recognize it, but we haven't fixed it. Uh, and all you're saying is that we are not quantifying systemic risk. Now, beyond the level of scope definition, systemic risk also includes project controls and the maturity, risk management and the maturity of that, uh, complexity of the asset, complexity of your execution strategy. I think, Dale, you mentioned contracting. So you have to have a, you know, a well-reasoned strategy there. But any of those things are not defined, you're up, let's call it shit creek. And so the transportation industry is really up shit creek in terms of contingency estimating. And the politicians have taken advantage of that. They, they know if they announce it at class four, the idiots in the back room are gonna give them a low number. And they don't have to lie. They don't have to deceive. They simply have to announce it early and, and party time, they've got a project approved because uh, nobody's quantifying the, the number. So anyway, we know the answer. Uh, it's called scope uh, and scope definition and quantifying that explicitly. And that's the answer uh, right there. Uh, if we wanna stop overrunning, we need to have phase gate, measure the scope development, be disciplined about it, quantify it, end the story, and yeah. we covered. Now, people don't believe me, but I, you know, that's why I wrote my book eventually is trying to communicate 300 <laughs> pages here. The first 150 pages is the research because nobody, I had to get that Irish monastery and get it out into people's hands uh, and yeah. explain all this. So anyway, here we are, I'm still explaining it. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay, I appreciate that. Yeah. I'll get Dale to jump in now. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Uh, just for the listeners that, that won't watch the YouTube necessarily, it's, the book is called uh, Project Risk Quantification. Is that the full title, John? Yeah, so it's about five years old now, but it's available uh, on Kindle for about 10 bucks. So no excuse not to get it. It's <laughs> and it's way worth more than 10 bucks. So listeners, go out and grab yourself a copy there. Um, I was fascinated by just listening to you there, John, um, and you mentioned a whole host of various uh, topics that sort of, in my mind, I wrote down quite a few questions, um, but one you brought up quite frequently was around uh, risk and uncertainty, and a little while back, we posted a discussion question on LinkedIn, and 
there was quite a lot of discourse and debate about and, and debate, sorry, about um, what the definitions of uncertainty and risk and the relation between those two are. I wonder if you could just clarify for, for from your own opinion or your your knowledgeable, experienced opinion, what risk and uncertainty actually is for those that perhaps have not really dipped a toe even into risk management, what, what the definitions are, how they relate to each other, and why there is this confusion um, out there as to the various relationships of the two components. Yeah, and I think the takeaway right now you need to know is there is no accepted definition. And so my recommendation to all my clients and everybody is first of all, when you're having a conversation, define your terms. <laughs> because, you know, in the AC TCM framework and the risk management chapter, there are 16 definitions of risk given. The reason we did that was just simply to drive home the fact that if you're in insurance or if you're in safety or you're in project, everybody has their own perfectly valid definition. And there's all kinds of things like the, the night decision, which I don't understand, you know, I, the very oddball definitions. That, uh, so the, the point is we have to agree amongst ourselves what we're talking about. So, uh, you know, there's a couple of ways you can look at risks versus uncertainty. Uh, as engineers and cost people, I, I direct people to the one we understand the easiest. When we do quantification in our tools, it's fairly simple to think about. Uncertainty, generally speaking, is a fact. It's 100% probability. It's not an event. So uh, uncertainty are just attributes of our system and the way we do things that causes a cloud of, uh, could be here, could be there, we don't know. Uh, some people would say it's unknown, but I don't agree with that. We know exactly what that cloud looks like. But uh, anyways, uncertainties then have a probability of 100%. Systemic risk, for example, I would argue are uncertainty. Uh, we call it a risk, and then get back into the definition. Risk, uh, uh, ISO and AACE and PMI all have the same definition of risk, by the way, which has to do with anything that causes you to deviate from your plan is a risk. Opportunity, threat. So risk has this, and because they defined it so broadly that way, it's almost synonymous with uncertainty. Because it's just anything can go here and there, you know, so... That's where we get kind of lost. Is the risk definition from ISO is basically synonymous with uncertainty because it's not very specific. But uh, from a quantitative viewpoint, uncertainty is 100% probability. Uh, risk is generally an event, or which is a less than 100%. It's something that will happen or occur, yes or no. Uh, and so that's a simple way. Uh, then we can get into inherent versus contingent. Same thing, you know, it's, there's, there's almost always a dichotomy. You know, when you look at these, there's a dualism, uh, whether you call it risk and uncertainty, inherent contingent, systemic project specific, there's always the one or the other, right? Uh, so, you know, there's that dualism going on. So anyway, risk events are also called contingent risks. Uh, uncertainties are often, similar to inherent risk. Some people call them planned and unplanned, you know, just, which I think is ridiculous. You don't really plan anything till the end, you know, but anyway, uh, 
so if you want to know the definition, I would, the simplest one is the 100% and less than 100%. Uh, or inherent contingent is probably the one set of terms that most industries use and kind of understand. So in, I think of risk in terms of quantification, I think of contingent risk, which is the probability less than 100%. And when I think of uncertainty, I think of inherent and, uh, and just attributes and facts about your the state of things that results in that cloud of, of noise. I think that's the hot topic now in the last week is noise is the big book on the market. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but I did read an earlier Kahneman article about noise. But uh, anyway, that's a, that's a very good way to start learning about it. Uh, noise really has to do with that uncertainty part. No, that's awesome. Thank you for well, uh, a tangent here. So does that help? No, it's great. It's great. I, I love it because the more we can hear from your expertise, I think the better for everyone. Um, yeah, it, it's great just to get, get your view on the, the two, you know, definitions. And I think the key takeaway there for me, as you said at the top of it, is just ask people what do you, what is your understanding? And so we can talk the same language. Um, because as you say, it often gets lost in translation. I've had many projects I've uh, worked on where people mention the word baseline and I say what do you mean what do you mean by baseline hmm. is it your earned value management baseline I... is it your cost baseline your schedule baseline the one in your schedule in, in your in your contract what do you mean and the I, range I of a... answers you get is um, you could write a book about them <laughs> we just had a debate two days ago on LinkedIn about inflation versus escalation again same <laughs> Finance thinks it's inflation. We think it's escalation. Other people don't know what any of them mean. Yeah, and utilization is another one that. Yeah, right. Put, yeah, but no, it's great. So, folks, if there's one takeaway from that little mini conversation there, ask if you unsure if you're having a debate to say what do you mean, I'll, you know, and just agree on what the and, definitions and are. The one place where it's going to come to a head is the the workshop, the register. That's where it all filters down to what 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 is it we're putting in that document uh, and that's also one of the problems with quantification is that the registers are lousy <laughs> so you know if you if you know about the risk management process the first thing we have to do is identify the risk get them out on the table and usually most people use a register to capture that and that things kind of go downhill from there because the register attempts to break it down or categorize them and that's where it just starts falling apart is that you know it's full of all kinds of worries and then you get the issues uh definition another one that just causes nightmares i don't believe in issues uh get that word out of out of my lexicon if you will please uh but anyway all of these words come in and just confuse the hell out of people but so yeah, so the it's a real problem. So when you start that workshop and to start developing your register, you have to agree on the exact what's going in this document. How are we going to classify things and break them down? What are we going to quantify this way? What are we going to quantify that way? That's another problem is that you can't use the risk register for quantification. It's totally useless for quantification and people want to use it. <laughs> 
but really it's just a you know a, a log and you know, just a tracking mechanism when we get the quantification we're going to pick and choose things out of that random list uh, to quantify different ways and that's something else people don't recognize is there are different methods of contingency development for each type of risk there is no one method that works well for all of it so mm. that's uh, another problem people aren't aware of i'm working okay. on a review to paper by a guy named dr peter love and there in australia and uh, he talks about having a, a toolkit and really that's where AAC is going. We have a, a number of like hybrid methods. So when we talk about that, we're, you have to have a risk contingency toolkit to properly quantify it to different classes and phases. Uh, and as the risk type changes from phase to phase, you have to have different tools. So that's, uh, you know, that's one of the arguments Dr. Hewlett and I have is he's very much the critical path method expert, but uh, you don't have a critical path schedule at class five. What the heck are you going to do? You, know, you have to have a method for class five. And then at class four, often you still only have a Gantt chart or maybe the very fundamental critical path. Uh, you still can't use critical path method at class four. So uh, again, we have to have a toolkit. Uh, and so uh, kind of going off on tangents again here, but anyway, these are all the risk register, the risk types, the toolkit to line up your contingency with the different risk types, all of that is essential. And nobody understands that. I keep saying Monte Carlo method. There is, you know, that's another one, you know, the Monte Carlo method, please take that. <laughs> there is no such thing. Monte Carlo is like multiplication. <laughs> you, know, you, use it in, you use it on your checkbook and you use it for your taxes, but there's no multiplication method. The Monte Carlo, you can simulate anything, right? You know, so anyway, uh, you have ranging is being used for everything. All phases, uh, all risk types are trying to range it, range it, range it. It's just total uh, disaster, as we said at IPA. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, um, it's, it, it almost occurs to me on projects, big projects in particular, infrastructure projects, that it's more of a box ticking exercise than it is an actual process uh to again have another viewpoint or perception of the project i always saw at least in my my view and maybe with dale as well it was always just another um another vantage point to see okay you know the estimates that we have in the program are they close um but usually what would happen is the effort to estimate was crunched down into such a small period of time because we were also delivering at the same time as, as actually trying to estimate the project. This is during the delivery phase that I was more worried about the quality or the, the methodology behind the estimates than I was the output of the Monte Carlo simulation. And when I brought this up, it was often quashed or, or discussed, you know, kind of deferred or you know, we'll talk about that later. And I, I feel like a lot of people in projects want to do a good method of estimating and want to use risk, I guess, quantification and, and definitely um, some of these Monte Carlo methods or processes or, or calculations, as you put it. But but I feel like, again, back to data, like you said, you know, and, and garbage in, garbage out. How do we, how do we affect that uh, causation? Because I, I really feel like it's the, the start of the process that's 
problem, not necessarily the output. What's your What's your view on the inputs? Well, that's a fact of life that estimating is the tail of the dog. And I'm an estimator. And if somebody asked me what my project expertise is, it was originally estimating. But you're always getting information late and crammed into the final couple of months of the project and just scrambling. And you know, for contractors, developing a bid is just insanity. You know, the owners yeah. three weeks, you know, to develop a you know billion dollar, you know, are you insane? You know, so the uh, the quality of the product very hard to maintain and you're scrum. Now the risk is even worse because that is then post estimate and post schedule development. And so you, if you have five days, you know, you're kind of lucky half the time. And that's a fact of life and we're not going to get around that. Uh, so actually when I developed my toolkit, if you will, and at AACE, uh, my focus has always been on practicality. Uh, we have to have rational, practical methods that the average cost engineer estimator can do. Uh, and we can't have them be so complex and so statistically all this arcanity that it's just ridiculous. We have to make tools that people can use. And so that's where I have focused on. So the methodologies in my book, even though there is a toolkit and multiple methods, all of them are eminently doable in a short period of time. So when I do a risk analysis, even for a mega project, it really takes me more than about a week or 10 days tops from the time I start talking to the team to having a report. Because if I, if, if I have a method takes longer than that, then it's only going to be good for a few mega projects here and there, which, you know, there's a lot of mega projects can make money on, but uh, I want my clients to have a set of tools they can use for a $5 million project just as easily as they can use for 500 million or 5 billion. And so that's, yeah, in my book, that is a driving force is to what methods and tools, or uh, I think what Dr. Love called them as heuristics. I think what Kahneman calls in his book about noise is uh, algorithms. These are all ways of simplifying a very complicated statistical situation into a set of rules and a model, algorithm, heuristic, whatever you want to call it, that can give us reasonably good outcomes that are reliable. And so that's where I've been at, is developing that heuristic, that set of tools with certain rules, empirically in informed by reality, uh, that have bring data into it, uh, mm. that is reliable. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, but <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's great. There, there's, I, a, I, I, there's a rhyme and reason to everything I'm doing for the last yeah. 15 years is to, I, I, to that point. I do take that point on. I think as well, just for, for the listeners, if we could summarize, because we, we started the conversation with infrastructure cost overruns and how do we avoid them? What are your top tips in terms of, I guess, cost avoidance on infrastructure projects? Well, the top one, like I said, phase gate, is without that, without a disciplined phase gate, it's all kind of pointless because no one will ever know where they're at. Uh, once you have a disciplined phase gate system, which people, I think infrastructure now is getting there and they now have every country basically has one, is that you have to have the risk QRA or risk quantification method that uses that measure of level of scope definition directly. 
based on our historical understanding of the uncertainty resulting from the level of scope definition. So that's number two. Now, on top of that, we have the issue of complexity. Uh, that's a whole five-day conversation in its own right. But complexity is almost as devastating as the level of scope definition uh, because on these mega projects, the mode of failure is not linear. So on the average large project, you have good and bad and they're just kind of mediocre and you got this curve. Uh, when you get complexity with all of these parts and pieces of the system, and it's hard to see it all, and they don't work together very well, you can have one part of the system start collapsing and it can pull down everything and, and result in a blowout. And so complexity can result in nonlinear behavior. So that's another tool in our toolkit. You know, we can take the models we have and add the nonlinearity component uh, and address the complexity issue. So for infrastructure, that's the third thing is that there are so many mega projects now in transportation particularly, and now high voltage transmission and other things that we have to model that complexity and quantify it. And we need to get the complexity topic away from the academics and consultants. They just talk, 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 you know, just, I'm an engineer. I agree, I agree. <laughs> uh, so in my book, I have a method. Anybody can quantify complexity and put a number on it, you know, and enough talk. We, we know what it looks like. We know how it behaves and we know that fat tail and we know the probability that fat tail is gonna go up as it gets more complex. What more do you need to know? So anyway, there is a fairly simple methodology for that. You know, so that's the third thing is complexity. Uh, the fourth thing is level of technology. So if you have like a high speed rail, maglev or something, now you're, now you're really in trouble <laughs> because we know again from research that when you throw new technology in there that uh, the uncertainty cloud just got that much wider because in the course of a, me a mega project that lasts five or six years, new technology will evolve. It doesn't stand yeah. still. So right in the middle of engineering and right in the middle of construction, you know, the guys in the laboratory are white coats are coming up with new stuff. And we see this a lot in the control side, you know, the controls are always evolving, never stop. And so, you know, you see the end of the mega projects, the controls and the signaling systems causing nightmares because seven years ago, they, they had another technology. Yeah. Seven years later, you have this AI driven control thing that they didn't figure out until six months ago. So uh, you have technology issues, all of that, has to be addressed. Each one tackled in its own right with specific tools and measurements to do each one. And it's all there. It's not mm -hmm. yet invented. It's, it's been done and we know what it looks like. That's brilliant. Yeah, so Thanks, John. Sorry, quick well. um, if anyone saw LinkedIn, I don't know if you saw this, John. Um, you know, we're representing you coming up next on you know, talking about infrastructure, cost overruns, how to avoid them. And someone wrote, all you need to do is put John on the project. <laughs> so I thought that was a really good comment. No, unfortunately, Excellent. you can see what I'm wearing. Uh, <laughs> people don't listen to me because I don't have the gravitas, the uh, 
and I get kind of passionate about things, so they kind of turn off when I start yelling at them. But uh, uh, we we love it here. We love your passion, John. But yeah. Anyway, I, I now have software available on the cloud, so you don't have to look at me. Uh, you just get the license of the software, and everything in the book is now available without uh, talking to me at all. <laughs> there we go. There we go. And and the software you're talking about, that's valid risk. Is that correct? Yeah, we just came out with it last month. Uh, I've been implementing the methods for 15 years. Yeah. Uh, but it was uh, kind of company by company through word of mouth and spreadsheet based. And then last year we decided to take the leap uh, and make it a commercial product. So it's called Valid Risk, all one word, uh, validrisk.com. And it's a licensed fee based product. Awesome. That and has parametric modeling in it. It can, it's fully calibratable. So if you're in infrastructure, you can use your own historical experience and calibrate it to your uh, to the skewness and bias that you have. And bias is actually the, a mean input. There is bias, and that has to be quantified. But anyway, it also deals with risk events. Uh, and uh, so anyway. It's, and it's integrated. It, it produces a cost and a schedule outcome. You can produce a joint confidence level chart if, if, if you like that kind of approach. Uh, we're still working on the escalation module. Uh, escalation is another whole topic. Uh, yeah. I kind of leaped into it in, in the beginning of the super cycle. So I feel like I'm probably one of the world's experts on it because at IPA, we have to have to normalize our data for time to keep it current. And in 2004, we discovered that the indices that were published everywhere were total garbage. And so uh, that was a six month learning exercise right there just to figure out what the heck is going on with escalation. And uh, realized that there are no published indices, not a one for the price of capital projects. So that maybe we can have another podcast about that. Yeah, but absolutely. Methods people are using are to a large extent garbage. Uh, using inflation indices, which really have nothing to do with what we do. Mm. Uh, and the published indices don't match anything that's bid. There is no index for anything that's bid. It's only for things you can buy uh, in a catalog. Uh, or order consistently from you know so which which is not the, the problem. The problem is when you get in a hot market and you have bidding behavior, uh, which an escalation then becomes an order of magnitude different than people's understanding. So anyway, that's another kit, toolkit. So in my toolkit, I use my contingency tools that build up as inputs to the escalation model. So when you get the schedule distribution, that in turn is driving the escalation cash flow. It tell you what you get out of it is a universal capital cost profile. Tendency, escalation, complexity, you know, you name it, it's all in there. Uh, I just got to get people to pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, hopefully this is one way, John, the product. Yeah, hopefully, podcast. hopefully. Yeah. Um, but we'll certainly post links um, to the websites to where people can get your books as well to the show notes so they can go and grab that. And plus they can get hold of you on LinkedIn as well. You're not hiding anywhere, um, which is fantastic. I just have one more question heading into the end of the podcast. Um, you spoke quite a bit earlier on around how we need to ensure that we're measuring our scope definition. And I just wonder for those listening in going, how do we measure our scope definition? Do you have a, a bit, just a little bit more insight to those listening that, that might help them? Yeah, well, first of all, from, a, from an estimated viewpoint, that is the purpose of classification. It is a measurement of the level of scope definition from the viewpoint of an estimator of what an estimator needs to, to know and documents they need to be aware of and to study and, to, and so forth. Uh, but beyond the estimating view, you have other planning documents uh, assuring, you know, for example, that you're working with the stakeholders and doing stakeholder management. Uh, and it tends to be in the form of something like check the box, if you will. Uh, unfortunately, people don't put enough thinking into it. But uh, it's really just a series of uh, studies and deliverables and uh, things they need to know at the decision gate uh, in order to, uh, to quantify anything, we have to measure it first. Now, when we were at IPA, uh, you know, we criticized things like the Project Definition Rating Index, which is also measuring, because it's a self-performed assessment, there's a tendency to be biased. And uh, I'm gonna give you an example, in a process plant world, all, the, all estimators know that the PNIDs, the Process and Implementation Diagram, is king. If that's not complete and signed off by operations, you've got nothing. And as estimators, we know that the PNID is gospel, you know. So if you have a way of measuring the level of scope definition, what you need to have is a really good qualitative uh, assessment of the state of the PNIDs. What's in it? What's not in it? Have we checked? Is everything done? Have all the studies been done? You know. Uh, and you have the same type of deep questioning about every deliverable. So for example, the, you, know, you just can't say, hey, I got a class three estimate. I hate that designation because uh, when I review estimates, which is I do for a living, I have never seen a class three estimate in my life. I am not exaggerating. Every estimate a contractor calls class three is around class 3.4. <laughs> What do I mean by that? I mean that every deliverable, when I look at them, is not really done. Oh, we got a PNID, but we didn't finish the utility PNIDs. We only got the process ID. Well, guys, it doesn't count. You don't have all the PNIDs and they're not signed off by operations. You've got nothing because operations has the wherewithal to change anything they want until they sign it. So anyway, uh, that's the problem uh, with the level of scope definition is the check the box mentality uh, and taking credit for things you really haven't finished. So when I apply my risk method, I don't give you credit until you're, you're done. Uh, and teams kind of take issue with that. They get mad at me and I'm just, hey, we finished being ideas. No, you didn't. <laughs> uh, come back to me when you're done. You know, so anyway. Uh, that's what I mean by level of scope definition, not just the 
technical deliverables for the estimate. It also includes things like stakeholder management, regulators working with them, which is increasingly important in all of those types of things as well. Communication, uh, getting buy-in, so forth. Awesome. No, that's thank, thanks for that. And it's useful tips for those listening in. John, as you mentioned, we'd love to get you back for another podcast because there is so much we can talk about. And we, you know, we've gone down quite a few rabbit holes, quite deep rabbit holes on this one. Uh, you call them tangents. We love to call them rabbit holes. And we'll find <laughs> those nuggets. And I think we've got a lot of nuggets on the show. So thank you for that. This section of the podcast is the feature though. Uh, it's called Defend the Indefensible. It's inspired by the ridiculous statements we hear day to day. Um, and what we do is we put our guest in the hot seat for 30 seconds to defend a ridiculous statement. So if you're ready and if you're willing, I'll give you a statement and you have 30 seconds to de defend it. I have it. to defend it? Yeah, in other words, you have to argue for the statement. Okay. So are, are you <laughs> Just ready, Just remember, John? don't have to snip it out. It's, you know, anyway. <laughs> in, in context, I'm glad to do it. <laughs> we will not uh, take out the explanation so you are okay so the statement is the following risk analysis is academic and a waste of time we don't need fancy statistics just deliver to the plan actually it is a waste of time because all of the estimates we do are so overestimated and fat and larded with allowances and stuff so we don't really need any contingency to start with so it is a waste of time. Why do we even bother with contingency? And by the way, off the record, that is true statement for projects, small projects. <laughs> it is a waste of time for the average six month, you know, $500,000 project. So that's, unfortunately, I can defend it as a true statement. Awesome. And you were almost spot on with 30 seconds, 31 seconds, but um, that was amazing. Thank you, John, for being such You're a good welcome. sport. Um, a little bit of fun at the end there of the podcast. Heading uh, into the end, John, um, I want to come to you just for any final thoughts, uh, words of wisdom that you want to leave the listeners with. Simply uh, to consider joining AAC International if you're not already a member. Uh, it was a lifeline for me when I was in my 30s. It's uh, made my career, so to speak. Uh, and also not just join ACE, but get involved. Uh, everything I've learned, I learned from developing product. Uh, I was not the expert in anything that I, uh, CCM, you know, that was my education. So the more you're involved and commenting on things, reviewing things, actually developing our products or, or just writing papers, you're going mm. to learn an awful lot more than taking some, I'm gonna say stupid class. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'm a self learner, but uh, joining AACE was a fabulous opportunity because it's a small enough organization, you can make a difference. Uh, mm. You get to know the experts that are there uh, personally, uh, and they are experts, you know, so just really look into becoming active in AACE at your local section or uh, wherever. Thanks, John. Thank you for that. And I'm sure Val will echo those sentiments uh, because he started his journey with the AACE not too long ago. Val, any final thoughts from you? No, John. Um, no, I'm actually going to 
study up and get some reading. Uh, I know there's a few books you've got out. Uh, again, I think tos, Total Cost Management, for anyone who hasn't read that, is, is a great, uh, I guess, consolidation of some of the work at AAC, but also yourself, John. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been reading your publications for a while, so thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And again, thank you guys for inviting me. I appreciate it. It's been our absolute privilege and pleasure, John. Just before we go, John, we promised you a bonus uh, section, which is the Q&A called Tenor. It's a quick fire, 10 questions and 10 answers by yourself, um, okay. which Fel will take you through. I'm, I'm ready. ready when you're ready, John. Ready to go? Okay. All right. Uh, the first one is, what's your morning routine? I get up about 5.30. Uh, I exercise for half an hour and take a walk for about 20 minutes and eat breakfast. And I'm usually at my computer and writing in LinkedIn <laughs> uh, before <laughs> I get down to work. Excellent. Uh, number two, would you rather spend your day with people or technology? I love technology, but I love communicating about it. Uh, so unfortunately, I'm probably talking at people more than communicating. But uh, no, I'm an Aspergian person, uh, not so much in public company. But uh, I love technology, but I love sharing uh, a lot. Question three, how do you deal with stress? I don't really have any. <laughs> uh, I'm 65 and I don't take any prescriptions. I don't know how I got here, but I think I just really kind of fascinated by curiosity. And uh, I, I've been fortunate in my life to always have a, a good income and so forth. So uh, I just don't seem to suffer from stress. <laughs> so I get stressed by uh, stupid remarks, but other than that, <laughs> Question four, what is the best book you've been gifted? Gifted? I, uh, probably the biggest gift, uh, my uh, wife kind of steered me to uh, an online website, Goodreads, that drove me to be more logical in my reading. So it's not just one book. <laughs> it's more uh, reading cross-section books and reading pasta. And so I, I would recommend everybody get involved in goodreads.com. Track your reading, read what other people are reading. Uh, it's kind of like this book, Noise, that just came out, you know, uh, keep on top of that type of stuff. So I read uh, probably 40 to 50 books a year. Uh, it's a goal, you know, it's something I, I need to do. Of course, mm. I get old, so I need to do it for other <laughs> reasons, keep my brain going, but... Uh, Anyway, yeah. one book, it's, it's the gift of uh, structured reading, if you will, or thinking about reading. Excellent. Question six, what's the best piece of advice you've been given? Uh, well, my father, uh, who was an executive at U.S. Steel, which at one point was the largest company in the world, told me uh, you can be loyal to people, but not a company company has no soul. And, you know, you asked me about stress. I think that uh, he uh, unfortunately passed away young because of stress and being loyal to a company, doing whatever mm -hmm. they want to do and 
So I think that's, you know, if I get tired of a place, I, I leave. <laughs> so, you know, in terms of a company, I have a contract with them uh, as long as it's to both of our advantages. Well, I'll be big help to you, but as soon as it's not to our mutual advantage, I'm going to move up down the road something more interesting, you know. So that's kept my stress level down by uh, finding interesting opportunities and challenges and moving. The only thing I'm loyal to are, you know, the, the mentors and my family and so forth. Brilliant. Question seven What is the biggest mistake you've made on a project? Uh, overstepping my knowledge, uh, you know, imposter syndrome is, a, it's a problem with consulting. It's an ethical question, you know, as people looking at you, it's funny mm -hmm. when you're 50, you become a consultant, all of a sudden these executives who didn't pay you the time of day, all of a sudden are staring at you and what do you think? <laughs> now, so there's this pressure to kind of out overstep your level of knowledge and sometimes maybe lead them a little astray. Uh, not necessarily intentional, it's just probably really didn't have any business taking recommendation. I'm not going to give any specific example, but uh, I've given bad advice here and there <laughs> that turned out three years later that why in the world did I say that, you know, but uh, that's the thing. It just makes sure you uh, stay within your area of expertise, always expanding that area. Somehow you push the boundary, but uh, mm. It's, it can get dicey if you push too far. Uh, question nine, what profession other than your own would you have liked to have t attempted? I'll say that again, other than what? What profession other than your own would you like to have attempted? Uh, I wonder if I should have been a scientist. Uh, I went into engineering. My dad was an engineer and uh, this seemed like I was mm -hmm. an engineer for life. So maybe I'll tell my 10 years old so. Don't just focus on engineer, but uh, you know, science, uh, I might've been a better fit there than in engineering, uh, mm. but uh, who knows. Brilliant. And the final one, if you had $1 million in a day, what would you spend it on? That's the problem is uh, I probably wouldn't spend it on anything. <laughs> I, uh, I hate to say when you get to this age, the hockey stick starts to pick up. You have a million dollars, you don't spend it. You're kind of asking yourself that question every day. Why don't I spend this damn money? But mm. uh, 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 unfortunately, I'd probably put it in the bank. And uh, that's why I don't have any stress. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well said, John. Uh, thank you for being such a good candidate for our tennis session. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Val. And thank hey. you, John. That was pretty cool just to have a bit hey. of fun at the end there. As I want to well. say one more thing. I want to do a shout out. It's kind of like the Carol Burnett thing. I yeah, go for it. Remember, she used to pull her ear. So somebody <laughs> out there listening to me right now, pull my ear. Uh, so uh, I remember, uh, you know, I want to give recognition to uh, Bruce Elliott, who's saved my rear end more than a few times. So thanks, Bruce. That's it. <laughs> Thanks, Bruce. Thank Appreciate you, Bruce. You, if not for you, Bruce, we wouldn't have John here today and all the good things he has done for the community. So thank you, Bruce, so much.
So folks, that is all we have time for on this episode, but it doesn't have to stop here. Support our charities, access blogs, or if you think you have something interesting to share, visit projectchatterpodcast.com. Don't forget you can send us a voice message via our anchor page as well. And don't forget to hit subscribe on our YouTube channel and your favorite podcast player so you don't miss the next one. A big thank you to our guest, John Holman, and thank you all for listening. Till next time, we say stay safe, be disruptive, and have fun doing it. From me and Val, it's bye for now. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the participating individuals and not necessarily to the individual's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. Additionally, any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual.